We're in Acts chapter 14 again this morning. Okay, let me turn this guy on. It's the same passage as last week. Oh. Advanced degrees, but I can't um, work a... Yeah, we go. What did we look at last week? 14, 19 through 28. Okay, there we go. Good. 14, 19. Okay, there we are. I'll begin to read from verse 19. We'll finish off um, chapter 14. This is the perfect word of our perfect God. But Jews came from Antioch and Iconium, and having won over the crowds, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing him to be dead. But while the disciples stood around him, he got up and entered the city. The next day he went away with Barnabas to Derbe. After they had preached the gospel to that city and had made many disciples, they returned to Lystra, to Iconium, to Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith, and saying, Through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. When they had appointed elders for them in every church, having prayed with fasting, they commended them to the Lord in whom they believed. They passed through Pisidia, came to Pamphylia. When they had spoken the word in Perga, they went down to Italia. From there they sailed to Antioch, from which they had been commended to the grace of God for the work that they had accomplished. When they had arrived and gathered the church together, they began to report all things that God had done with them, and how he opened a door of faith to the Gentiles. And they spent a long time with the disciples. Amen. Let's pray. Gracious God, we thank you for your word. It is a light and a lamp unto our path. It shows us, Lord, our sinfulness. It shows us the relief from our sinfulness. Name of Lord, Lord Jesus Christ. We see you in it and our need for you. We pray, Almighty God, that you would teach us to believe what we are to believe about you from this book. And you would cause us to live in such a way as brings glory to the gospel. May our whole life be a thank offering to you, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Teach us, Lord, to be good servants. You are the best of masters, even our God. Amen. We're considering the same subject as last week, um, but with um, maybe a little bit different of a perspective from this particular text. I'm not quite sure. There, There are... There are another, um, at least two standalone subjects that I see even looking here. We have the construction of the church, the establishment of it, the connectionalism, which is the Presbyterian formula, the connectionalism between churches, and then the plurality of elders is here. So maybe we could do something on the nature of the church. There are some other things in here, but I- I'm not sure. But um, this may be our, our last time in this section. Um, we'll, we'll, we'll see, see how the Spirit works this week in me. But we're continuing the idea of um, the nature and the usefulness of being a servant of the Lord Jesus Christ. And then particularly, you'll see it with my title, which is clearly here, especially from verse 22, the nature and the usefulness of serving and suffering for Christ. And some of that you may think, like, who in the world writes like that? Well, I read the Puritans all day long, so sometimes I just, like, people are like, are you in a time warp? I guess I am in a time warp. I I actually think that's what we're looking at. The, The nature and the usefulness of serving Christ, and then serving Christ, and then sometimes suffering for Christ's sake. So there there are, I'm going to argue at the end of the sermon, hopefully, um, that God, in his infinite wisdom and mercy, he works good out of our painful circumstances. So if you are a brother or sister in the Lord this morning, and you are um, in painful circumstances, that you're in some kind of affliction, some kind of tribulation, the Holy Spirit tells us that we must go through this before we enter the kingdom of heaven, meaning heaven. Um, this life is... Thorns and thistles, this is, this is our suffering time, this is our humiliation time, this is our cross-bearing time, 
and then very, very soon it will be replaced by our time of exaltation and uh, crown wearing. So if you are one of those believers, I am one of those believers, um, God has good news for us this morning. He, he, he will work good out of your painful circumstances. Not just me that says it as his servant, but he says it. So the subject of servanthood is all over the place, especially if you have a highlighter and a paper normal Bible, which I, you know if you've come here more than two times. I, yes, it's good for your phone to have the Bible on the phone. The, the real Bible is way better. And you need a pen and you need a highlighter and you need to highlight that critter up. And you need to get good with that Bible because the Bible is the Word of God. We get it in us. The Word of God is in us. We have to study the Word of God. and It's easier... I know it's pastoral application, but if you were to go through this text with your highlighter, which is something that you can't do on your phone, and you were to highlight how many times the, the word disciple is mentioned, it's like three, four, five, six, seven times. And disciple in Greek is mathetes. It means learner of. This is a Matthew chapter 11. Take my yoke and do what? Learn of me. He is the master. This is the, the language of master to servant. And we wouldn't, see, we wouldn't see that. So, again, when the whole, the whole text is he is, our, he is our master. He is our Lord. We are his servants. We belong to him. The, the, the shorter catechism, we exist to glorify God and to enjoy him. How do we do that? We serve him. It's our greatest privilege. Our great, we have been saved to serve. We've not been saved by our serving. We say all the time, but saved to serve. So, subject to servanthood. We mentioned last week, and it's worth pointing out again, as we touch on the subject of servanthood, that uh, the flesh has a resistance to uh, the whole idea of being a servant. And so there are people that are in the flesh. This is Romans chapter 8. And they sow to the flesh, which is to say they're unbelievers. Unbelievers hate the idea of being a servant. They reject it. Unbelievers believe the, lie, the very first lie told by the devil. And the very first lie told by the devil to our first mother was what? You can be like God. You can be little gods. You don't have to be a servant. You can be what? You can be God. Read Isaiah 14. What got the devil cast out of heaven? Pride was found in his heart. He didn't want to be a servant. He was an angelic servant, a cherubim. The morning star, actually, he's called. Here he's a servant of the Most High, but he didn't want to be a servant. What did he want? He wanted to be God. So the, the, the thing that he wanted, he tricks our first mother, and then she tells the first father to obey, and he obeys like a dutiful husband, sadly. And, 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 and then here we are. So the flesh does not like what we're talking about. The flesh of the unbeliever. But I'm going to say something. Sometimes in the Bible, the Bible will use language that we have taken off the old man and we have put on the new man definitively. And this is in reference to our justification. So positionally, we are holy. We're in Christ and we're considered holy. But then the Bible will say, take off, put on. So you think, wait a minute. I had two people in the church one time they were having an argument over this text, these passages. And one says, we have taken it off. And the other one says, it says to take off and to put on. They're talking two different passages for two different things. One is justification. The other is sanctification. You have to mortify your flesh. You have to vivify, grow in righteousness, chase Jesus. Philippians 3, 1 through 14. That's the sanctification. And so I mention that for this. Not just the unbelievers hate the whole notion of being a servant. Our flesh, we have, the un- we have that fleshly part of us. And it is going to remain with us for how long? As real believers. Real believers people who really love Christ, we still have the flesh, the old man. How long will we have it for? Until they say, Brother Bob or Sister Sally is with the Lord. <laughs> We're going to fight against this critter to the day we die. This is a Romans 7, James 4, 1 Peter 2. Read those things. And so when we come to like service, and we're real Christians. I'm in a convocation of real Christians. We love Christ. We're loved by Christ. And we hear... Well, you have to serve. Serve like, oh, I'll serve God. God, nebulous God serving. No, no, no. You see that person over there? Serve that person for Christ's sake. Because we can say, oh, I love God. Love Jesus. Love him so much. Serve him so much. Just people. 
people are, eh, I would love to serve God and serve Jesus, but people, not so much. We serve Christ by serving other people. This is a first John chapter 3, I think. Don't say you love God, who you can't see, but you hate your brother who you can't see, who you can see because you're a liar. So the way we serve Jesus Christ is serving human beings. And even our flesh, sadly, and you know this, right? If you have a little kid, you, you see this. If you have little children, or your children are starting to have children, children's children, and you say that little beautiful thing. Bitsy, please do Gigi or Papa says X. And if they want to do Y, what will you see? Oh, oh no. They are the little lords of their own life. And, and not only does the flesh want to be the little lord, the little god of its own life, what else does the flesh want mastery over? Everything. So we come here and we acknowledge right away that the flesh wants to be God. But there's a problem with that for the flesh. And this is what unbelieving man doesn't believe, obviously, but it doesn't matter. God is, he is, he's immutable, that means he's not changeable, and he's sovereign. And not just Calvinist, Armenian debate sovereign, well, let's fight, fight about election, I mean sovereign, sovereign. God is Lord, he's creator of all things, and he does not commit or share his lordship, as it were, with the creature. God always is the only supreme master, always. Man is always the subordinate, dependent, servant creature. Always. Even when we as Christians die and go to heaven, and when we do die as Christians, we, our souls immediately go into the presence of Christ, and our bodies rest in the grave. So it is glorious. But sometimes you hear people say, when I go to heaven, I'm going to know everything. No, you're not. No, you're not. You're still going to be a creature. You can't know everything. That's an aspect of divinity. He, God always retains that. So even in heaven, we're going to be creatures. He's always the sovereign master God. We're always the subordinate, dependent creature. Now, in heaven, it's glorious. We're going to be the highest expression of human being that there is, but we're always the dependent, I hate to use the term, subordinate, always the inferior to the superior. The flesh says no to that. What do we say to that? Daniel, in the book of Daniel, chapter 4, there was a fellow that started off and said, you know what, I'm not really a servant. I'm the king of kings, the lord of lords. I'm the master of my own destiny, the captain of my own ship, whatever that poem was, Invictus. I highly recommend you read that. It's an obnoxious poem. Um, Read it Monday through Saturday. Monday through Saturday. I forget the guy's name. It's three words, two first. Invictus, Invictus. Um, um, written in the 1800s. Um, uh, Timothy McVeigh said this, a poem from Invictus, as they were um, taking him off the planet. Uh, that's man. And, and Nebuchadnezzar did a species of that poem, Invictus. I am God, I will never be servant, hear me roar. And then God told Nebuchadnezzar through his servant Daniel, actually, um, Nebuchadnezzar, I am God and you are my creature, and I'm going to teach you that you're a servant. And where did you learn that lesson? Daniel 4. In the field. In the field. What did he do? He took away his reason. He made him think he was an animal. And at the end of the seven-year period, God gave him back his reason. And what did Nebuchadnezzar say? God is God. I am not. He does whatever he wants with anybody and no one can say anything. The unbeliever says that's not true. But guess what? And we know this as believers. Does the denial of the truth in God, in Christ, in the Bible, does it prevent or negate the truth? No. 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 But what the unbeliever finds offensive to the flesh, beloved, we're not unbelievers. I'm just going to paraphrase 1 Corinthians chapter 2. 12 to the end. I think it's like 12 to 16. The natural man hears things of this. We, we, we exist to serve Jesus. Christ came and served himself and gave himself and now we're his servants. 
The natural person hears that and thinks, what? This is silly. But the, the, the Holy Spirit inspires the Apostle Paul to say, we are not the natural man. If you are a true Christian, you truly say Jesus is your Lord and Savior. You're, the only forgiveness of sins is bound up in his blood. You say that. The Bible says you've said that because it's a gift of the Holy Spirit. He's enabled you to do that. He's enabled you to do that. You are a spiritual person. You're made new. And what that means is, as a believer, you can estimate the true truth of things. You know the truth. And, and you can reason rightly. We have, the Bible says we have the mind of Christ. And if this was another church, I'd say raise your hands, but Presbyterians don't do that. But I'll, I'll do this. In your mind, raise your hand. If you are converted later in life, I don't know, from the time you were 16, 17, 18 onward, think this. This happened to me. Did you think the moment you, you become a born-again Christian, you're forgiven of your sins, and then you're like, wow, I got exponentially smarter in the past. Like, I'm smarter than I was. Before I was a believer, I had looked at the Bible. It, I had no clue. After the Holy Spirit gave me faith in Christ, I'm like, yeah, I know what that means. I'm not saying I'm like John Calvin instantly the moment I'm converted. But you understand. You can estimate things rightly. That's you, beloved. So what the unbeliever says, this is, aw- this is awfulness. Dying for sins, rising for justification, and then you as, you as a believer are his servant? This is awful. That's the flesh. But you're not in the flesh. You're in the spirit. And with the spirit wrought book on your lap, what do you say? This is my greatest privilege. So the unbeliever thinks, says, a servant of Jesus? That's awful. And you say what as a Christian, looking at this? I'm a servant of Jesus. I'm a servant of Jesus. You almost want to jump. If we were Pentecostals, we would jump up and down. This is the greatest privilege. Think of it. What were you before you were found in Jesus? What were you? Who were you? Where were you? Read Luke chapter 15. We're all pigs living in the pig pen. We're all pigs living in the pig pen. Even if you think your folks came over in the Mayflower and, and that you're the hoi polloi. We're all pigs living in the pig pen. And now what are we? Beloved sons and daughters of God who God condescends not just to save us but to put us into his service. It, it's beyond a privilege. My wife used to say to me before we got in the ministry because we, I was such a crazy sinner. Do you think like you could be a minute like you? <laughs> I'm like, well, Paul was killing guys a day. Like, <laughs> I, I think I can. I think he takes bad people and sinful people and saves them and cleans them up. It's our greatest privilege. It's the greatest. Pri- in the Bible, um, Moses was called. This was the glory of Moses that he was called the servant of the Lord. And even a number of places with David. David doesn't glory primarily in that he's the king of Israel. David writes under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit a number of times, I am the servant of the Lord. We mentioned last week, the apostles, they didn't walk around. Now Paul did, he would throw in his apostolic authority, but it was usually after he uses that Greek word doulos. I'm a doulos of Jesus. I'm, I'm, a, I'm a slave of Jesus. So the, the prophets, the apostles, some of the great redemptive figures, they'd lead with the idea that I'm a servant. I am God's servant. And all of this is in imitation of Jesus. I, Isaiah like 45 to 55. It's the suffering servant section. Our Jesus is called the servant of the Lord. It uses both for Christ, diakonos and doulos. Servant, servant, and slave. I think it's J.C. Ryle that says, why do we, as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, think our life should be better, easier, fill in the blank, than our Jesus? If they treat the master the way they treated the master, why do we think, to quote the Puritans, why do we think that we're supposed to be carried to heaven on a bed of roses? And we all do. Do I pitch a fit when things in my life are, are hard? It depends upon the day. Sometimes I have to suck my thumb for a couple of weeks. Sometimes it only takes a few days till that wears off. 
And sometimes by God's grace, I can actually not suck my thumb at all. I can give God the praise. But what I mean by that is when we are pitching a fit, when life is hard, verse 22, tribulations, we are saying to God, it should be easier for me than it was for the master. Jesus says, as they treated the master, they're going to treat the servants. If we believe that, when the tribulations come, when the fiery affliction comes, we could say with the Bible, this is not strange. This is not unusual. When I do pre-marriage counseling for people who have never been married, let's say two young people, 20s as young people. Now people are there 40. They, they, well, I'm only 40, like they're 15. But let's just take like young... I, I, went for, I, I went out for Indian food the other day and I was shooting the breeze with a guy. I said, oh, are you married? He said, no, I'm, only, I, I'm too young. I said, well, how old are you? He said, 28. I said, 20. It's 28, the new 14. I, I don't know. But, but young people, 20s, and pre-marriage counseling, I always tell them, look, it is wonderful. You, you're cute. He's cute. Everybody's cute. It's all great. And cons- hypothetically, when you say I do, hypothetically, you're going to go through some non-cute phase time here. It's going to be some tough plowing. And they look at me. <laughs> and you're like, oh, these poor clueless people. But God tells us this in advance. So when we hit the tough plowing, wow, like I'm a servant, servant. Like a servant. And I'm hitting affliction time. Why am I hitting affliction in my marriage? Because well, the Bible told you that you would. <laughs> See what I'm saying? So the flesh denies it, we embrace it, but we only embrace it because it's been gifted to us. And the idea of being called servant of the Lord, it's just, the privilege is beyond amazing. We who were conceived in sin, lived in sin, have been saved out of it, and we've been brought to Christ, and we're privileged to serve him. I want to read from Matthew 20. It's always helpful, I quoted J.C. Ryle, J.C. Ryle says, it's always helpful to get a clear stated doctrine of the Bible and to get that, to use the paraphrase, to get it into you. And this is a passage I would argue that we should get into us. Jesus says this. Jesus called the disciples, the apostles to himself and said, in reference to what we're talking about, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them. This is how the flesh thinks. We're the masters. And their great men exercise authority over them. Listen to this. Christian, it is not this way among you. Whoever wishes to become great among you shall be your what? That's it. That's it. And he goes on to say this. Whoever wishes to be first among you shall be your slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. That's it. That's the calling. Our Christ is God of gods, Lord of lords, King of kings, and he stoops and humbles himself, Philippians 2, 1 through 11, form of a servant. And Jesus says, Now, disciple, you learner of me, you go and do likewise. So that's our calling. This is just generally the nature of our subject, but it's a privilege. I want you to think privilege. When you think your servantship or hood to Christ, I want you to think stewardship. Um, I do this also in regular marriage counseling, which is pre-marriage counseling is fun. Regular marriage counseling is never fun. So in the regular marriage counseling, I usually tell the husband, usually the husband, because I have to be careful with the, the, the other part. So with the husband part, I tell the, or, or suggest to the husband that he, he looks at his wife through the lenses of being a steward. God gifted you with this woman. she's She's God's gift to you for you to serve her for Christ's sake. It's a gift. You're the steward. Now take care of God's gift to you. It changes. So we have the idea of stewardship. We have the idea of servantship. And it's a privilege. But when we think steward, like you're responsible, God has given you this tremendous gift this tremendous privilege, but there's tons of responsibility. Like, when you get a wife, when you get a husband, when you have children, when you have grandchildren, when you have anything, when you have gifts, 
now you're held responsible in how you're going to use them. And, and so think, think, when you think that you are a steward of, a servant of Jesus, think that your body, your soul, your talents, everything that you are, God in Christ has given to them as, as a gift. He's entrusted you with them. And there's going to come a day when he will say to you, he will say to me, so how'd you do? How'd you do with my gifts? What'd you do? Did you use the gospel seed, the gospel talent that I gave you as my steward, did you put it to use? You have a body. Did you use your body for Jesus? You have a voice. Did you open your tongue for Christ? And, 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 and so those are the kind of things. And as I mentioned that, it brings me to the idea of when we think that we're all servants, everybody, I just have the calling of being a mouth. <laughs> I'm the mouth. This is the First Corinthians chapter 12, Romans chapter 12. All of us as Christians, and for me, Christian is embracing of the gospel, which is what we see in the passage. You see that the guys are going out preaching the gospel. They're not going out, and I know it's a slam against Calvin. It's y'all sitting around talking about Calvin. I love John Calvin. I love all these guys. I love Martin Luther. I don't preach Calvin. I don't preach Luther. I don't even preach J.C. Ryle, who I love, love, love. Um, I love these guys. But they, these guys weren't going around preaching themselves or preaching Apostle Peter or Paul. They're preaching Christ. So it's the, the embrace of the gospel, which is the, the cross, makes us Christians. But as Christians, all of us have a different place in the body of Jesus. Everybody has a different gift. Your gift is going to differ than mine. And my gift will differ from yours. And I'm going to say this, as regards to servants, your crosses and your deficiencies and even your sins, we may differ all over the lot. So there's a man that was raised more blue blood than me. And so he had a blue blood experience. You know what I mean by blue blood. Yes, Beauregard, can I have a mint julep? Something like that. And I wasn't raised like that. I was raised the other way. And I remember listening to this person, and I'm thinking, wow, I, I was totally raised, like I probably would have been shining your shoes in your house, and you would have been telling me to shine your shoes. I was guilty of sinning against that brother. God made him that way. God raised him in that environment. And God uses him, and God uses all of that background. I sinned by thinking, well, because I was actually taking my low and making it higher than his high. And he wasn't doing that. He was just being him. And I thought he was putting on airs, but he wasn't putting on airs. He's been gifted. He's been trained. His whole background. And think of all of your background. You can think, well, I, my, I only had one parent. My mom was this. And my dad. God governs it all. And he takes it all. He makes us who we are. And then, and then we serve Jesus with those differences. And I'm going to say this. In our own way. Jesus is the one. God is the one that superintends everything. You're his servant, not my servant, not any other Christian servant, ultimately. In all of your differences, he uses them for you to serve Jesus in your way. And what we do, even as true Christians in the flesh, I wouldn't do it that way. My way is better than your way. The way you serve Jesus is not right. Now let me help you by kicking you in the shins, telling you how to serve Jesus. What does the Bible say? You're not the master. I'm not the master. They stand or fall before the master. Right? Right. So let's resist as servants, looking at our fellow brother and sister servants going, it's the look down, the snoot look. They're serving Jesus the way they serve Jesus, the way that he governs their life. There's a woman, a mom, with two kiddos. She writes a book. I've not read it, but I've seen the cover. It'll break your heart. The little boy has Down syndromes. I don't know what they call it anymore, but I'm not picking on it. For me, I don't know what the term is, but Down syndrome. And it said like, um, um, and she had another boy without Down syndrome. And she writes something like this. Two boats, same, same lake, something like that. And the notion is, each of these kiddos, the kiddo without the Down syndrome and the kiddo with the, the Down syndrome, God's governing all of this. And they're each going to serve Jesus their own way. Does that make sense? 
So we have that. Think of the idea of stewardship. Um, along the lines of serving, and we see it here, Martin Luther. Martin Luther said there are three kinds of sweating for Christ or three kinds of serving Christ or three kinds of laboring for Christ. They were, um, oh, what were they? Uh, political sweating, ecclesiastical sweating, and then uh, a filial sweating. And so what he was getting at is this. There is a, um, with, the, with, the, uh, with the civil he meant the workaday life. There's a way for us to serve Jesus in what I would call a workaday life. What's, what's your workaday life? It's whatever you do Monday through Saturday. When you wake up in the morning, if you put your work boots on and you get your lunch bucket, I know I'm showing what I, where I came from, but if you get your lunch bucket and off to the factory you go, that's your workaday life. And then you serve... You serve Jesus while you're at the plant. You serve Jesus when you're driving the truck. If you, if you say, well, my husband's off at the plant and, and I'm the wife home with the, the 20 kids and I'm up to my elbow and stuff, that's where you serve Jesus. That's where you serve. And I'm not saying that the wife is always... But we serve Jesus in that kind of civil sweating, whatever our earthly calling is. And this is where the Puritans would talk about vocational calling. And the calling itself is a gift. It's the gift that God gives you to serve him. And just like we're not to look at another brother or sister and go, oh, you're a lousy servant, you're not doing it the way that I am, we're often, we often covet another man's field. I wish I had, I could really serve Jesus if I could serve him over there. Don't do that. If he wants you over there, Jesus will put you over there. But he's put you where he wants you. So this is a crummy job. Don't say that because God could take away your crummy job and not having a crummy job is worse than than having a crummy job. Amen? Amen. Because I'm going to see you on the street saying we'll work for food. And work is a gift from God. It's always going to be hard because of the thorns and thistles. So we are to look at our workaday life, whatever it is, as, the plat- as a gifted platform for us to serve Jesus. And you think, well, well, I'm not expressly talking about Jesus. You don't have to expressly talk about Jesus, but devote your service unto Jesus. What do I mean by that? You remember what God told the Jews before they went off to Babylonian captivity for 70 years? Here's what I want you to do. I want you to build houses and plant fields and be the best citizens you can be. That's what I want you to do. So when we as Christian people, and I know the politics gets people crazy, and some people focus more on politics than Jesus, which is a sin. That will be another sermon. Be the, best, be the best citizen you can be. What does that mean? I don't hurt anybody. I go to work every day. I try to pay for what I need to pay for. I give Caesar the stuff that he rips off from me because he wants it. I give it to him. I don't look good in stripes. And so I give him all of this. This is, this is what Paul tells the Thessalonians. Make it your ambition to do what? To lead a quiet life. Make it your ambition to work with your own hands. You think, well, my work-a-day life, being the best citizen, the best builder, the best... Yeah, that's your servant. So that's the, the civil service, serving Jesus, sweating for Jesus. The ecclesiastical is just a fancy word for church. In the church, let's just... I don't believe clergy lady, I, but, that, that, but let's put that aside. The minister here in the context... You labor hard. This is Paul tells Timothy, 2 Timothy 4, 1 Timothy 6. Labor hard at the preaching of the word. Now, I've often said this to young guys and not so young guys who say, I think I'm called to the ministry. Sometimes guys think they're called to the ministry because they think the ministry is easy. They're allergic to work. And so I always tell them, I know you think it's easy. And you think, well, you read John Calvin and you work for half an hour a week, and then the rest of the time you smoke a pipe and wear a tweed jacket, you're gone. You, you are gone. There's a reason most ministers don't make seven years. There's a reason. So if you're allergic to work, stay far away. The Bible says to the minister, you work hard at it. So if you're a bricklayer, I ought to work as hard as you work laying bricks. And then for us, in the church context, do, do you and I labor with other brothers and sisters in the Lord. Read our secondary standard, chapter 26, on the communion of the saints. This is one of the reasons why it's helpful to come to church all the time. When you come to church, you talk to your brother or your sister, and they say, 
man, the truck just, man, I, I, we got one car and the truck just whatever and I can't get to work and the other brother has three har- cars at the house and what does the brother with the three cars say? Hey, look, it, take one of my cars for the week. You figure out what you're going to figure out. Talk to the deacons about getting your transmission fixed and let's make it happen. That's work. That's laboring. And then the family service, which I think is, for me, marriage and parenthood, to me, is, is sanctification like, like class, if I could rank it, the 400 level. It's like the 400. You get married and your sanctification just gets thrown into fifth year. And same with little kids. What you thought, like, oh yes, I'm going to die to my sin and follow Jesus. Go ahead and get married. Go ahead and have a baby. It's like people that, before they have babies, my daughter did this. She read a book, Parenting Bebe, French woman, Bebe. And she'll, oh, I'm going to do whatever. Then she has this little kid. <laughs> and the kid's not playing ball with the book. And so then you're figuring out, like, wow, I've got to, you are supposed to serve me because I'm the parent and you are the little bitsy. And you find out, you will find, right? We're looking at a woman. When little Asher says at 2 o'clock in the morning, it's time to eat. <laughs> Mama jumps out of that bed and says, aye, aye, sir. But here's the business with our family service. Husbands, I'll talk to all Christian husbands, potential Christian husbands. And I know Ephesians 5. I know. I know. We're the reader. We're the leader. We're the head. I believe all that. How do we lead? By serving. You serve your wife as Christ serves the church, which means you die to yourself, pick up your cross, and you serve her. So the guy that says, I'm the leader of Zig Kyle, and they're goose-stepping around the house, ay, ay, ay. You do, you think, read Ephesians. Look at the cross. Look at Jesus. All Christian husbands, we serve our wives. It's my belief that women are better than men, but that's another story. And that if you... If, you, if the husband serves the wife, the wife is apt to serve the husbands. But, wives, let me get my hockey helmet on. I put my hockey helmet on. You have a husband to serve. So part of your Christian service is you, I serve him. He's such a schnook. Nope, serve him even if he's a schnook. And then for the kiddos, our kids serve the Lord by serving their parents. And, and I used to think this, and this is silly. I thought when the kids hit, hit, hit 18, it was all clear sailing. It could just be me hanging out with my college girlfriend again. Boy, how silly I was. When your kiddos are older, parents, you know this. One of the ways you serve Christ is you serve your kids. Well, my kid's 25. You're going to minister to your 25-year-old kid. Well, my kid's 40. Oh, you're going to minister to your 40-year-old kid. And you know your kid. You know their emotions. You know their frailties. You know their sins. And you serve them. I'm not saying pay their rent. Maybe you pay their rent. And then you minister to the children's children. So, but it's a glorious privilege. Let's just talk a little bit about because I do want to touch on it. Look at verse 22. So one of the things with being a servant of Jesus Christ, which we find from the text just thematically, is it's hard. I mentioned the ministry, and I'm not up here sucking my thumb going, oh, it's so hard. I read three books this last week and I got a paper cut. I'm not talking about that. Let's look at these guys. These are gospel ministers and, and they're, they're kind of, we're using them as an example of what servants of Jesus look like. They're going to prayer meetings. They're fasting. Now, again, show of hands in your head. Have you ever fasted? Okay, just as, before I say that. I've been in churches, they're like, I'm TV fasting. I'm fasting from going to the mall. I'm, f- I'm not talking that. Or I'm fasting from sin. <laughs> it's even, it's even sillier. I'm talking no food. No food. Like no food, no food. I have a friend that one time said to me, I'm on a 40-day fast in Tallahassee. 40-day fast? Like Jesus. And it was a, it was a um, non-solids Everything was put into a smooth... smooth. I'm like, you have a 5,000-calorie shake. That's not a fast. (laughs) That's not even a diet. I think he gained weight on the fast. But God's servants are fasting and praying. No food. Let me ask you something. No, No kidding. Do you ever fast? 
Jesus in Matthew chapter 6 treats it as normative. When you fast, when you pray, when you give, it's normative. And so you're like, why don't ever? Why don't you? And it's a, it's a form of self-humiliation. I'm not saying that what we do to the body like flagellation. I understand Colossians 2. But do you fast? Do you pray? These, kind of, these guys, these ministers, are praying for success on their evangelistic endeavors and their missions. And they get on boats and, and they go. And you know what the, the, these ministers do? You know how they get most places to go tell people about Jesus? They walk everywhere. They walk everywhere. I, I want to say this as regards to just kind of like the, the tribulation that we see, the hardship of being a Christian disciple, a servant of Jesus. This is part of it. It's an application of 1 Corinthians chapter 9. Remember Paul says, I discipline my body. Remember that? So in the context that we're looking at, verse 19, he's in Lystra. Verse 20, he's in Derby. You know how far it was from Lystra to Derby? 60 miles. How did he get there? Have you ever walked 60 miles? There's a guy, I listened to him when I was sick a while back, in the 1930s in India. Oh, it'll come to me. He killed tigers. It's a Shakiri, is in Hindi, a tiger hunter. And I listened to this guy's, the stories are being read. Woke up this morning, 12-mile hike, had breakfast, which consisted of a biscuit and a tea, hunted the lion or the tiger all day long, and had another biscuit or tea, and hiked for another 30 miles. And the guy's like 60. Beloved, I, I, I want to say this, and it's, it's not a throwaway. When Paul says, as a servant of Christ, I discipline my body, our souls have to be disciplined. I'm not talking about eating carrots on the hallelujah diet or anything like that. But I would say this. I, I, I think I'm correct, and I want to say this with, with all kindness. We should look at, as Christians, as disciples of Jesus, everything we eat, everything that we drink, everything we listen to, everything we look at, and ask ourselves this first. Will this make me better as a servant of Jesus? Or will, will this make me worse? I'll use myself as an example. The highest I've got up to weight-wise is 227. And I'm skinny, so it's all fat. And then you go to the doctors and they say, hey, would you, 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 you want to die early or what, what do you want to do? You want to die early? Well, I like eating a half a gallon of ice cream. I, I get that. I like eating a whole pizza. I get that too. Is that healthy for me? Is it good for me? Is it, am, I, am I being a good servant? With my, is it making me better just to serve Jesus? And like that, well, I can do it. I can watch whatever. No, I'm not. We should ask ourselves, remember, discipline our bodies, discipline our spirit for what? For our service. If God said to, to you or to me tomorrow, I got a guy 60 miles away and I want you to tell him about Jesus and there's no car. How am I going to get there? You're walking. Can I do it? Can I keep serving Jesus? So everything in our life, we should look through, will this make me a better servant? Can I serve my wife better? Can I serve my kids better? Can I serve my job better? Or will it hurt me? And then about the tribulation. Obviously, Paul goes down to one place, and the week before they said, you're the greatest you're a god, you're Zeus and Barnabas, and they want to worship, and then a half an hour later say, you're the devil, we want to kill you. Being a servant of the Lord Jesus Christ is hard work. I know sometimes the gospel is presented like this. God loves you, has a wonderful plan for your life, except Jesus, everything's awesome. God loves you, has a wonderful plan for your life, and everything is awesome with the Godhead when you believe in Jesus, but now the games are going to begin in earnest. The war begins in earnest. It is hard being a Christian. It's hard being a servant because you're fighting against the world of flesh and the devil. And Paul comes along and says, hey, look it. You want to serve Jesus? It's going to be tribulation time. It's the exact opposite of how people evangelize. People evangelize now and say, don't tell anybody the bad news. You mean, and I've heard this. Well, you give like a nice sermon with a coffee and a back rub and get him in the church. And after the fish are in the church, then you clean up the fish. What do you think? There was a guy in this pulpit many years ago that told me, 
What you win them with, you have to keep them with. You don't get them in saying, hey, don't worry about anything, and then go, oh, by the way, it's going to be a meat grinder. You told me it was awesome. It is awesome, but it's an awesome meat grinder. They're gone. Paul says, you're going to go through many tribulations. Where did he learn that? Acts chapter 9. The Lord Jesus Christ, the risen Lord Jesus Christ, says to Ananias, he is a chosen vessel of mine, and I will show him what? The Christian life is hard. Serving Jesus is hard. We live, the Bible says, in the present evil age. You can't go to the movies. Oh, you're a fundamentalist. I'm not a fundamentalist. Go to the movie. The first part of a movie that breaks any of the Ten Commandments you have to leave, you just wasted 20 bucks. Go to the beach. I'm not arguing about going to the beach. If you like to look at girls in thongs, have a field day. It's a sin. You see what I'm saying? This is not easy to serve the Lord Jesus Christ in a, in a Christ-pleasing fashion. You're saying, well, do I have to wear a burqa and live on a commune? I'm not saying that at all. I'm not saying that at all. Are we devoting our bodies to the service of Christ, our eyes to the service of Christ, our ears to the service of Christ? It's hard. If you want to do that, Jesus is in this life, there's much struggle. I've overcome it, but in this life, all who want to live godly for Jesus Christ will what? Will suffer. It's not you being a legalist. It's not you being a Pharisee. You're just trying... Christian husbands, Christian husbands, your wife wants you to love her only. Only look at her. Only ever look at her. You know what I mean. Try to do that in this world. And own a computer. And own one of those stupid phones. You know what I'm saying. You know what I'm saying. It's hard. Because it's against the world, the flesh and the devil. And God, God says this. And so there's a need. God tells us the truth. But then Paul says, you have to go through these things before you get to heaven. I want to end with just maybe three or four or five things about what I just mentioned. The Bible says in the book of Romans, and maybe sometimes people have used this to you wrongly, and if they've used it wrongly, I apologize to you on their behalf. Romans 8.28 says, all things work together for the what? For the good of those who love God and are called to according to his purpose. And here's what someone, well-meaning Christians come to you. You're, in your, you're crying in your soup in so much pain. Well, Romans uh, 8.28. There you go. Love you in the Lord. See you later. Does that help your fellow brother or sister? Or does that hurt your brother, fellow brother or sister? That hurts him. But Romans 8.28 is real. And if you ask me, how is this thing, this tribulation I'm going through, work for my good? I may not be able to give you the answer. But that scripture passage is real. That's a promise of God. All of the pleasant things in, for those of you in Christ will work together for your soul good. But all of the hard things, this is part of all the hard things. And I'm going to show my cards. Hard things, tribulation, does for you and for me in Christ Jesus what easy, pleasant things can never do. They, it can never do. I want you to be healthy. I want you to be wealthy. I want you to be happy and wise. And if I gave that to you and all you had was that, you would be the worst Christian. I would be the worst Christian. We wouldn't look like Jesus. We wouldn't be good servants. What are some of the benefits of suffering and tribulation? And I'm just going to tell you this and quit. They wean us from the creature. It weans us from the creature. Oh, the world is not my home. I'm just a passing through. Yeah, you're saying that when you're healthy. L let's see you mean it when you're sick. We love this place. We love the world. It's pretty. I'm not saying don't, don't love it. Affliction will wean us from idolatry, idolatry to the creature. We find our hope, our satisfaction in other people. In all of these things, it takes our eyes off the world. It takes our eyes off of man, even the people in our own family. Quit idolizing them and, and, and worship the Lord. It weans us from the vanity of the creature. 
And it, and it convinces us of that. And, it, and, and it, here's the thing that you know that it does, which, which pleasant days can't do. It drives you to Jesus Christ. I said to a person right now who is in a brutal crucible, an absolute brutal crucible, how is your prayer life? And before she could answer, I said, I know how your prayer life is. You can't even get a word out. You can't even say Jesus because it's just tears. Those are the best kind of prayers. You learn to pray. You learn to love Christ. We and tribulation teaches us to hate sin. I just mentioned one little sin. You, you get thrown in a crucible. You'll treat that thing like the plague. For real. You will hate it. The Bible says, be sure your sins will find you out. I know a guy, fabulously gifted. He's riding a bike, living at his mother's house. Riding a bike, living at his mother's house at 50. Because I don't believe it. That rod, Hebrews 12, verses 1 through 12, will teach us God's view of sin. And affliction as well will be God's platform for the advance of the gospel. Beloved, people don't believe us when we tell, tell people that Jesus is the answer when we're sitting on the mountaintop. When you love Christ and you're weeping in some crucible, people think, how do you do that? And you say what? It's not me. It's not me. It's the Christ in me. It's the faith that he's given me that I can love and serve him. And beloved, all of our labors that we labor for Christ in all of those venues, most of which we never even really consider, devoted all to Christ. Wherever you are right now, whatever God has put in your hand, just pray over it. Lord God, what I do in, in the church, in my work, in my family, I, I do it for you, Jesus. And beloved, it, it, it is honoring to the Lord Jesus Christ. Christ remembers it all. And you will, you will hear, a well done, good and faithful servant. May God be pleased with his word.